0: Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of times occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on June 15, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Two excellent guests this week, a returning fan favorite, is Kirk Nara, a partner and co-chair of the cybersecurity and privacy practice at Wilma Hale in DC. He's been a leading authority on privacy and cybersecurity matters for more than two decades. He counsels clients across industries from Fortune 500 companies to startups on implementing the requirements of privacy and data security laws across the country and internationally. And that's not enough. After all this time, finally, I welcome Melissa Goldstein to the show, Associate Professor of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Milliken Institute School of Public Health at the George Washington University, where she teaches courses in bioethics, including genomics, reproductive ethics, end-of-life and research health issue, ethics issues. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, also, health information technology policy, public health law, and conducts research on health information privacy and the legal and policy aspects of health information technology. Great welcome to you both. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us.
1: Excited to be here finally.
0: Uh, so, of course, we have an excuse, as if we needed one, uh, for getting together uh, in that we recently co-authored a piece on the health affairs blog entitled COVID-19 Substance Use Disorder, Privacy and the the CARES Act. Um, and I guess uh, we we probably broke the rules, right, by, by having an article that, that dealt with more than one issue. Um, uh, first, uh, we talked about the relatively pedestrian but practically important privacy provisions that have been introduced for the duration of the COVID-19 health emergency. But then second, um, we discussed one of the most sort of under the radar legislative shifts or changes I can ever Remember, Uh, major changes were made to um, the statute that governs uh, 42 CFR Part 2, sometimes just Part 2, which is uh, the confidentiality of alcohol and drug abuse uh, patient records, and the uh, regulation that applies to that. And I did say abuse. We'll get back to that later. Um, So I thought we'd start with um, the emergency provisions. Um, uh, Something that I think we will to throughout our discussion today is how HIPAA seeks to balance the confidentiality rights of patients and the operational needs of providers. And I can see how we might disagree even amongst ourselves as to whether that calibration is successful. Well, in times of emergency, of course, we see temporary recalibrations. And I thought it would be useful to just quickly go through them. What are they? Do we need them? And perhaps where perhaps we can really add something of substance in the discussion is, do these emergency recalibrations actually point to areas where perhaps standard HIPAA gets it wrong and um, we need to consider whether some of these emergency rules should be part of the non-emergency rule. Let um, me jump in on that
2: Nick and I, and I don't you know that's an interesting question about whether I, I don't think it reflects the fact that HIPAA got anything wrong. Um, I would add one other thing to your balance point which I think is really important about HIPAA in general and I think is a is a bit of a I don't know wild card's is quite the right word but a bit of an element of the overall privacy debate that's coming out of COVID-19, not just for the things we're going to talk about today, but you've also got a balance of the system in general and the op- the effective operation of the healthcare system. So it's not just, you know, the, the idea of consumers and doctors being the equivalent of a consumer at the gap or a consumer with Facebook is sort of one-on-one balances. And I think the one of the things that I find so most interesting about the healthcare privacy debate is how you've got so many other stakeholders whose interests are factored into this, into this discussion. So let, let let's put the, I mean, there's a variety of ways you can characterize the waivers. I want, look, we should talk about telehealth distinctly, the telehealth waivers and put that aside. We, sh, we could start, I think chronologically, I'm doing this from distant memory now. It feels like about a hundred years ago, even though it was only a couple months. They had the original waiver of different elements of the HIPAA privacy rule. And I've had some debates with, you know, one of my favorite people in the privacy area who you both know about Devin McGraw about this the impact of this I've been confused by the point of those waivers there's waivers for I guess I get the waiver of privacy notices although I'm not sure I quite understand that there's a waiver of the obligation of healthcare providers to use essentially reasonable judgment when you're talking about talking to family and friends about a medical condition I'm not quite sure I understand the value of waiving the obligation to use reasonable judgment that's you know That's a weird thing to me. There's also a provision about uh, requests for restrictions and confidential communications. Confidential communications are little known parts of the HIPAA rules. Most people have no idea they exist. Lots of people in the system don't know they exist. But one of the purposes of a confidential communication applies in situations involving domestic abuse. And it comes up almost never because most victims of domestic abuse have not spent a lot of time reading the details of the HIPAA privacy rule. But if somebody knew enough to ask for a confidential communication, which happens like twice a year, I don't know why you would waive the obligation of the provider to do something that will hopefully prevent domestic abuse in a time period where we know domestic abuse is rising. So that whole idea of the temporary provisions, it's not the HIPAA got anything wrong. I think the changes almost got something wrong. I'm not sure I understand the benefit. I don't think there's a real impediment to the healthcare system for having to deal with a couple of requests in in a year. So that's been a whole weird, but again, some people that I respect very highly have a different take on. I hope
1: that I'm one of those people, actually, that you respect very highly, because I, I and I do have a different take, as you might imagine. Um, I think the first thing that I would point out is that perhaps from an ethics standpoint, or a patient participation standpoint, I would never use the word consumer, I would always use the word patient. And I see that there's actually a very big linguistic difference there between whether or not you're thinking about a transaction at the gap, which I love the gap, right, or a transaction between patients and the their providers or even their insurance companies, even though no one likes their own insurance company, right? So uh, I think that's the first thing that I would talk about in this balance is that we were talking about individuals who are patients in good times, but very often in bad times. And that HIPAA does attempt to strike this balance, but at various times in HIPAA's history, especially in the regulatory balance question, uh, there have been different approaches to that, often coinciding with different uh, political, uh, uh, hold on, say administrations. So different presidential administrations, going back to the very first regulations issued in HIPAA, which we do mention somewhat in the article. Which at the very beginning, treatment, payment, and operations purposes all required the patient's consent. Now that was in the Clinton administration, the very first regulations. The regulations were then redone during the George W. Bush administration for um, various political and technical reasons. And And the Bush regulations actually put in the treatment payment and healthcare operations exception. The problem was that, uh, and this is way too technical for, you know, uh, uh, thinking about during a pandemic, but uh, the problem was that uh, apparently the regulations had not been, quote unquote, presented to Congress appropriately so that the Bush administration was able to redo them, to redo the final regulation without actually issuing a new regulation, you know, which actually sent. Since then, uh, different administrative agencies have redone different things because of this particular issue that was used really for one of the first times during the HIPAA regulations. Anyway, my purpose is to say that this balance has been struck differently by different people at different times. And I think that's very important as a predecessor to our discussion later about what has happened now with part two.
0: And of course, the the big change from Clinton to Bush when there was this rewriting, if you recall, was that they took out the initial consent requirement at the behest of providers, which really does tie in nicely with, with how we're going to do uh, what we need to talk about uh, with regard to part two later. Um, so what else has come out? Um, we've had some FAQs on how providers should interact or how first responders in particular should interact with media, um, uh, community-based testing sites, such as drive-through testing stations, which um, presumably you would have subcontractors who would not necessarily have fulfilled some of the, um, the HIPAA requirements and so on. Anything of particular note there?
1: I think that that you have pointed out the the first responders, the um, ability for providers to um, to share information that might not be automatic under HIPAA with first responders, which includes law enforcement, right? So first responders, these drive-through testing. Um, uh, other people that are, um, doing contact tracing. And I think, you know, it is very important to have contact tracing ability, which we're realizing as a country right now and, uh, trying to ramp up efforts, but they've been lagging, as we know. Um, but the ability to share information about contact tracing, particularly with law enforcement, raises very interesting questions about who has the information and who they're sharing it with. Because under HIPAA, once it's gone, it's gone. It's not protected anymore. And the ability um, to trust that those people will treat that information carefully. Now, we are now having an enormous reckoning with trust of law enforcement officers in general uh, for racism purposes. But this also has something to do with the community's trust in healthcare providers in general, and the willingness of different races and ethnicities to come and to get tested because of where that information is. Information is going. So this waiver is very interesting to me in that respect. And it is, uh, while it is very important for contact tracing, the ideas of discrimination, the ideas of people getting... Um, ID'd as perhaps positive and being shunned by their neighbors or different ethnicities ha- having blowback, like we saw with the Chinese American community at the very beginning um, of the pandemic. It's a uh, they're, they're very interesting question. So I'm glad that at least this waiver is uh, only during the period of the declared emergency and not forevermore. So I
0: think one of the things that we almost always, when the three of us get together, we'll talk about at some point will segue into when you leave conventional healthcare and you move to digital healthcare then you know companies like Apple and Google not being covered entities or business associates most of the time it won't be covered and isn't that terrible and oh let's beat each other up and 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 so on um, but ironically the Google Apple digital tracing model as opposed to the conventional test trace quarantine model that uh, isolate model that you've been talking about Melissa is much better on privacy it, it's it's very very tightly control who gets that as far as we know <laughs> um, as to who gets that data and so on
2: well but that but but that's also a, a relic of the legislative and regulatory structure I mean they've they've made a conscious choice in building that system driven by whatever set of interests that they have to essentially voluntarily build that kind of a system They didn't have to build that kind of a system and so you know what what we're talking about in the other context is I mean HIP- HIPAA has, where it applies has, as we've talked about that, various balances and that and there was lots of places where they're actually trying to encourage disclosure or certainly permit disclosure. One of the questions I had with the first responder point was whether the, the, the waiver that came out actually changed anything or whether it was all stuff that was sort of permitted in any event anyways, but you had an encouragement of lots of things that are consistent with the healthcare system. We've got lots of health related activities that aren't covered by HIPAA where the operating principles are much narrower than HIPAA. They're just voluntary Voluntary, for the most part. I mean, I I've been waiting in a uh, you know looking looking for an environment in uh, in one of my classes to give a final exam, which would essentially ask the question if I uh, if I offered something that was health related but non HIPAA, where I essentially had a privacy policy that said uh, I'm going to I, I you give me permission through this privacy policy to use and disclose your information for any purpose that I would like to do it for, including to sell it to anybody who will pay me a dollar. Is there any law that prevents that? And you uh, know, I'm not sure there is at this point, but the the app that you're talking about was being built in a very different environment where they needed to be careful and thoughtful about it. And as you said, from all appearances, they've done a really nice, careful, thoughtful job about that. The other thing that that example points out may be different than some of the traditional contact tracing is how much of the health information data and health information questions that are coming up during the pandemic have nothing whatsoever to do with HIPAA. (laughs) I've been getting brought in to you know, all of the questions that come up, I've been getting brought into by all of my clients, all of my partners. And what I basically have to say, first of all, is yes, I know more than about HIPAA than just about anybody you can find. None of it is relevant. This isn't HIPAA. And that just, you sort of start from that and move on. And then you try to figure out what the rules are, knowing that the main healthcare rules aren't relevant.
1: I think uh, you've brought up a great point, Kirk, that I, I think this is a good time to emphasize it. So underneath HIPAA, there are only two required disclosures. Uh, one is to the secretary of HHS for auditing purposes and one of the requirement that a provider disclose information to the actual patient, right? The rest of them are discretionary or require authorization. Discretionary meaning that the provider can disclose, but the provider does not have to. And it's essentially up to the provider. You know, there are a lot of disclosures that are required by law, but essentially that's up to the provider to adhere to the law that requires the disclosure as well. So HIPAA does not require, even with these emergency authorizations, the disclosure. Disclosure of information. And, and
2: that's actually an issue. That's that's an upcoming issue with the government. There's a pending RFI from HHS. I mean, this is a little little bit of a tangent, but relevant to this context, which is where, where they seem to be raising a bunch of questions about the disclosure of information in certain contexts, one of them being some of the substance abuse topics we're going to talk about in a little bit, where it's an RFI, so there's not a proposed rule yet, but the government seems to be evaluating the question of whether they're going to start mandating some of these disclosures that are otherwise permitted disclosures. And that's a really interesting position. I don't think it's a position I personally like. I mean, in the same way I mentioned earlier, this waiver that seems to say to a provider, you no longer have to exercise discretion if you're gonna communicate with a, with a family or friend. I don't know that you wanna take away the discretion not to disclose something that's permitted. And so I think that whole question of permissive versus mandatory is, is starting to become a bigger issue you know, are we going to have situations connected to the virus where we're going to say you have to disclose? I mean, they're obviously public health reporting, but would we say, for example, you as a doctor have to disclose to, I don't know, a family member, a spouse, a coworker that you're, that my patient was tested positive? That's a whole different world. Now, we're not seeing that yet, but I could see that. Obviously, you know, I could absolutely see that in this coming up as a possibility in this
0: context. It's right. I mean, I think it's worth underlining that last point because um, while it's discretionary under HIPAA for the provider to disclose information to, say, a public health authority, there may be there are state laws that require providers to give the health department information. So those two just sort of uh, synchronize. And
2: that fits with HIPAA not because it's more privacy protective, which is normally how state law works with HIPAA, but because it's required by law, which has its own spe- separate category under the HIPAA.
0: Yeah, well said. We should really move on to talking about the, um, the information notes of enforcement discretion applying to the use of some telehealth communications.
2: So this this is one where I think this was a good idea. I don't think it reflects any necessarily any problem with the HIPAA rules. I think what it was saying was it was a confidence building exercise. It's It was not a statement that telehealth violates the HIPAA security rule. It's a statement that doctors didn't have to worry about whether it met the HIPAA security rule or not, because we're trying to encourage people to do telehealth. Now, I was getting questions from different people about what that meant and I said look I, you know my my take on this was yes you're given enforcement waiver but still be smart and thoughtful at the, you know when this was getting started you know set up a telehealth mechanism in your doctor's office set it up from your home don't go sit in the Starbucks and do telehealth visits with your patients but you know still be smart and thoughtful this will be one that I think something Melissa said earlier this will be one I'll be curious about whether whether this goes backwards whether they're going to get some I don't think they have to change the rules but will they issue some kind of a guidance that basically says reasonable telehealth meets the you know, meets the requirements of the HIPAA security rule because of the public. You know, and, and they would issue that with the idea of saying, we want to encourage this activity and we want to continue to encourage it. I think it was a perfect example of situations where providers are just historically have been too cautious, maybe because they didn't understand the rules, maybe because they didn't want to do telehealth, maybe because they actually thought it was a problem, maybe because they were actually worried about enforcement and you don't want to make them do it through the security rule, but at least you want to remove that that concern. If they were actually worried about security enforcement, you want to remove that concern. I'll be curious what happens at the end. Of, you know, 72 hours after the end of the pandemic, whether we get to go backwards on telehealth. Two points on that.
0: First of all, all of the the technologies that the notes of enforcement discretion um, picks out by trade trade name, I don't I don't think any of those have end to end encryption, which I know is not a HIPAA security rule requirement, but which I am sure most of your clients you tell, as far as I'm concerned, it's a requirement. The other thing that I I think is interesting also from from what you said, Kirk, is how the providers themselves are viewing this. Um, So two floors down from me, there's a doctor doing telehealth, right? And without disclosing the system she works for, none of these were ever going to be a startup. You will use the secure Zoom Medical. If you're going to do any of this, and there are some other software packages as well that they'd already purchased um, that they try and support
1: telehealth experience with my own doctors at the very beginning of uh, the shutdown. Uh, one of my doctors actually just called me on FaceTime, right? But now, depending on the practice, they have increasingly sophisticated software packages, right? They and and most of them are unique to the own particular practice, whether it's a large, you know, uh, hospital affiliated practice or whether it's a small practice, and it's gotten more and more uh, complex. I think for, again, the patient, the language about, like Nick, you mentioned the calling out by name of the various, right? So, and the difference between quote unquote private facing and the the difference between public facing. So we're on Zoom right now, but it's certainly not the medical Zoom. So I'm assuming it would not be allowed. Does this mean, are we public facing now? Like, I don't even understand the difference between public facing and private facing. So it would seem that provider organizations would really need to uh, have somebody that understands these types of things from a, a seriously technical background.
2: I, I agree. I agree with all of that. And again, I think this was a confidence-building exercise, and you're you're raising some appropriate limitations on how much confidence would be built by this kind of thing with all those caveats that you're still raising in. I do think this is another interesting balance issue, which is, and we've seen this in a couple of other places recently. We saw this with the interoperability and information blocking rules that came out recently where we're trying to push more data to potentially less secure APIs. We've seen it in the debate about, you know, email with patients where we're balancing an interest of the patient. We're balancing at least part of the discussion is the interest of the patient in receiving easy access to services or information with the interest of the patient and also having security of their information. And what we've seen in in a couple of instances recently is a movement to if where those are intention to favor ease of access and in more engagement over privacy and security now when you talk about Melissa your experience with your practices building better security that's a win-win I mean if you can still make if you can make these things work to help the patients and make it easy for the patients to access and have good security absolutely we should move for that that's a good thing that's a smart thing I would certainly tell my you know if, if, if I was working I don't have a lot of clients that are doctor's offices but I would certainly say to them, look, the fact that HHS um, isn't going to have an enforcement penalty against you for conducting telehealth doesn't mean you want to have a security breach involving telehealth. I mean, to my knowledge, there has never been an enforcement penalty against a medical practice for doing telehealth. And so I'm not, you know, th- th- that, that shouldn't be the motivating factor. But this idea of, again, I think there are some tensions between some of these technological efficiencies and privacy and security rights. I mean, I was having, a, you know, I was trying to get a hold of my doctor last week who was on vacation. You know, he kept calling me while I was on another phone from his secure phone that I couldn't even return a call back from. And I'm like, I just want to send him an email. <laughs> I have one question. You know, and it didn't seem that hard, but they're reluctant to do it. It's, that was one where it's like, as long as you tell me that, you know, do you recognize that email isn't perfectly secure if you just send me an email? It's like, let me send an email. And so I think that idea is part of the recent discussion that's really focused a lot on patient engagement. Let's make it easier for the patients. There's some little trade-off here. I mean, I don't think you. I don't think the solution is get rid of the privacy and security rules. Obviously, but you know, to make it easier for the patients to actually get what they want to have also seems like a good goal.
0: So, one um, quick note on that, and then we should move on to to part two. But um, one of the things that I've always criticized um, traditional healthcare for is the waiting room, which is, I believe, a testament to inefficiency, mm-hmm. understaffing, and all of the many things. That are wrong with our healthcare system. So what I was hoping that with the increase in telehealth through the pandemic, we would slowly see the 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 waiting room die, Mm -hmm. as we've all been hoping that it would. And then the other day I needed to talk to my doctor and I'm putting put in a damn virtual (laughs) waiting room. Zoom has a waiting room. Right, and there aren't even any old magazines you can flip through, right? Or other patients that you can go, <sighs> to. At, least, at so. least you won't get sick from them, though, Nick.
2: You will, you, 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 will, you will not get infected by the other patients in the waiting room. That's at least a nah. benefit.
0: Well I, well, I think, anyway, if they are going to have these virtual waiting rooms, they need to have a nice background or something, because just a, a dumb screen saying, you're in you, the waiting you,
2: room. You, you can look at the current issue of your magazines by going online, because you're at your computer, <laughs> so it's perfect.
0: <laughs> Alright, so, on to part two, and sort of the transition, I guess, is that while HIPAA, well, HHS, put, and HHS OCR put forward these emergency waivers, FAQs, and so on, part two, the substance use uh, rules have always contained an emergency rule, but it's it's a, a, a bona fide medical emergency rule. So what SAMSA did was they issued a guidance back in March saying, hey, you providers need to look at this rule saying that if there's an emergency, you can use a good faith approach to consent. Uh, but they didn't issue a blanket waiver of the rules. They just said, hey, you must make your own um, determinations. And, and so there's a entree to the question of consent and part two and I think one of the things that you really emphasized as we were drafting the article Kirk was how HIPAA and HIPAA consent that's built into the rule has this broad data or provides for broad data sharing among providers and that the other point I thought you really sort of pushed was that HIPAA shows no favors health data, HIPAA even applies to substance use data, Um, it's just that Somewhere else in the, co- in the code, there's another rule that also applies to that. So, should we start with there and sort of uh, how you see the history of HIPAA and the history of Part Two intersecting? I, I, I think the chronology
2: is important, right? I mean, when when Part Two goes into effect or when Part Two is created, there's you know, a, a substance abuse treatment is a relatively new thing, but there are no national or though no meaningful national healthcare privacy rules. So so there, there, there were a couple of historic points. There's no, there's no federal law dealing with healthcare privacy generally. We have a new and emerging category of specialized substance abuse treatment. It is mainly being conducted by specialized substance abuse treatment providers. And there was a dominant concern. I don't want to say it was the only concern. I don't know enough of the details of the time. But there was a dominant concern that patients would be discouraged from seeking treatment for substance abuse because you know law enforcement people would take the fact that they were in treatment and use it to prosecute them for criminal criminal offense totally understand all of the issues surrounding that makes total sense and and the question about using the 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 treatment against a patient in a criminal process is you know obviously still an issue we obviously treat substance abuse different and drug crimes are different to some extent but let's put that aside because that's a very limited piece of the overall rule we now fast forward to today where we in fact have a national health healthcare privacy rule. We know all the limitations of that, but it says that it clearly covers virtually all of the normal substance abuse treatment information. Um, and HIPAA, for better or for worse, this is a fair thing to question about HIPAA, but I don't really see it questioned all that often. HIPAA treats all healthcare information the same. Now, that means your physical, your, uh, your cancer, your mental health, your substance abuse, your HIV, whatever it is. It also means a whole bunch of information that isn't actually about your health. Health—it's your name and your social security number and your address and whatever else the doctor or the insurance company happens—they have about you—if it's tied to your record, it's health information. So you can question that approach, but that's the approach we have today. We also have, I think, two other important changes in approach. We have all kinds of healthcare providers who aren't specialized substance abuse treatment providers treating substance abuse treatment issues. That's one. Two, which I'm adding—I'm amending I'm, I'm my list as I think—we also are seeing. Blurred lines, you might argue no lines, between substance abuse treatment and mental health treatment in a lot of circumstances. And so we have slightly different regimes where you've got different rules, but lots of people can't really make sense of those rules anymore. We also have significantly more overall holistic, integrated, both data sharing and patient care. And that's created a very different environment, created a lot of pressure for the rules that we're eventually going to talk about the changes in. The other thing that was a an uh, impact of the sub, uh, the part 2 rules from the time they were written was they were th- there was much less sharing it wasn't just sharing to provider to provider but there was much less sharing outside of that system and so the rules were written to cover recipients of the data no matter who they were no matter what the purposes were even though basically none of the exceptions dealt with the insurance company or the you know, other people who were in the system and so one of the things we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years was all those companies were getting completely hamstrung in how they, they they didn't have any way to isolate this information and treat it this way. Um, now, one of the things that was in the background here and and, and Nick, you mentioned that uh, uh, SAMHSA didn't issue an enforcement waiver. Interesting question of whether they even could have issued an enforcement waiver since they didn't really have any enforcement authority at all. But there were companies who were totally well intended who just said, we have no idea how to make operational sense of part two when we're a third tier downstream recipient where some percentage of our information we don't even know what percentage it might be, might be covered by this rule. And we just treat it all the same for all of our purposes. And, you know, we're not prosecuting anybody. We're not sharing with anybody in that. You know, so the part two rules were becoming in a variety of places, a problem, A, a problem for the system, B, potentially a problem with patients in terms of some of their treatment issues, which was starting to percolate as a big issue. And it was just starting to lead to a lot of these questions that have been going on for 10 or 15 15 years at this point, then we're going to fast forward to how, you know, Congress decided to solve this.
0: Before Melissa unloads, <laughs> um, one one more sort of... <laughs> I was trying to be neutral on a lot of One that. more sort of general point in that part, one of the reasons part two has long been controversial is although it provides exceptional protection for SUD data, it's also a remnant of the damaging exceptionalism that has impacted the SUD cohort. So it's one of those sort of separating rules, right? So they've had separate treatment centers. There are tighter and different controls around the drugs and providers who treat these patients and where they can treat them, Um, which one of the things that does is affects the availability of medications for that population, the MOUD problem. Um, So it it, it certainly has been controversial. We've heard about it impact on systems? Melissa, Patients.
1: I think it's important for us to evaluate whether or not the problems that Part 2 was created to alleviate have actually disappeared, um, especially in our experience over the last three to five years uh, in what we used to refer to as the opioid and overdose epidemic pandemic before we knew what real pandemic was and before we had multiple pandemics at the same same time, right? So I haven't read anything about this lately. Uh, Nick, because you're involved in this much more um, frequently than I am, perhaps you have seen recent statistics, but um, I am still worried about, and there are many people that are still worried about uh, the willingness of people to show up into the system and get treatment. And I think that's my primary worry, which SAMHSA, the regula- the, the agent, regulatory agency that has primary authority over this particular uh, regulation and this particular cohort um, has re-evaluated repeatedly over the past several years, including twice during the Obama administration. So both the 2017 and the 2018 regulations were created and evaluated during the Obama administration. And yes, SAMHSA is the primary author, but believe me, there are many other administrations that are involved in issuing regulation. So all of HHS, all of the White House, certainly all of the Office of Management and Budget, those revisions to Part 2 were very carefully thought about, were very carefully discussed in the public, with the public. There was transparency all along. And the agency did make some movement forward, but did not change the fundamental structure of how Part 2 works. Recently, also, SAMHSA has rethought, you know, different of the rule and has again held to the original structure, perhaps mostly thinking about what is this need that we're trying to fulfill. I think we also need to think about the idea of substance use data as um, representing what we might consider sensitive data. And there are people, not everyone, who believe that some data, personal health data, personal health information, is more sensitive in that we care about it more than we might care about other data. And of course, course, there's a little bit of the eye of the beholder there and that some people care much more about data that we might not be concerned about, like, you know, knee pain or back pain, right, than other people would. So defining the word sensitive is not so easy. But substance use information, HIV, STI information, uh, mental health information, we can look at the different state rules about this and see that this is very commonly held to to be thought to need more protection or more focus, not just at the federal federal level, but also the state level. So, and, you know, this is reflected in the article, the fact that Congress decided at this juncture to squeeze this in to this particular law, which nobody really had the, uh, the, uh, let's say, freedom to actually reject at the time when it was passed. Um, you know, there, there's a lot more debate about incentives and bonuses and what. how are we going to fix the financial system right now than there was at the end of March. But um, to squeeze it in there without this public debate at this particular time, on the one hand, you can say, well, how much more debate do we need? We've been talking about this for years and years and years and years. But on the other hand, that's not typically how we like to do things here. We, we like to, you know, discuss a lot of things. We like to be there. We like to have a lot of hearings. We like to, you know, really, really chew on stuff before we put it out. So this is this is actually a big deal to a lot of people.
0: So just to give you the, the data that you, you asked for, Melissa, the, um, uh, we saw about a 4% decline in opioid overdose deaths year to year uh, last year. Um, but deaths from synthetic opioids have surged upwards. We're still losing almost 70,000 persons per year. And indeed, in April of this year, during our second national health emergency, the secretary re-upped the opioid uh, emergency declaration. And of course, Since then, we've sort of proclaimed or the media has proclaimed that we have a third um, national health emergency uh, involving race and policing. Um, So let's quickly sort of cut to the chase here. What happened in the CARES Act was, as you said, sort of out of the blue, Melissa, uh, with no real debate. I I didn't even know it was in there until I think a day before or something. Um, There is a radical rethinking of um, uh, the substance use uh, rule. Uh, including changing substance abuse in the enabling statute to substance use disorder. Thank you, finally. Um, But essentially, um, it takes the healthcare provider pieces of the Part 2 enabling statute, not the criminal court's protective pieces. And it synchronizes those health pieces essentially with HIPAA. After you have the still- Single, yes, there's consent, unlike in HIPAA, then everything basically rolls into uh, the HIPAA rule. And we're going to have to have rules. It's not in force yet. We had an interesting debate with a colleague the other day as to whether it would be self-executing or not, um, or whether regulations would be required by this due date in 2021. Um, but I guess to your questions, Melissa, what part two, or, or what part two, or what the substance use privacy protections have always been there, or at least viewed more recently as being there because of the potential for discrimination. And the balance now has to be, is is securing that information no longer as important as we start seeing the ADA being applied in substance use areas, in actions brought by persons in jails and prisons, prisons and so on. So is do we still need this compartmentalized additional privacy protection for the reasons that you stated? Or is it sufficient, which seems to be the CARES Act model, to move to less privacy and more anti discrimination law? And
2: can I can I add one other piece to that, Nick? I think the other part of the context, I mean Melissa talked about sensitive information. And I think regardless of your definitional, you know, you, you identify that what what's sensitive to me may not be sensitive to you, and I put that I get that. But I think there are certain categories everybody would treat as sensitive or think about as more sensitive. But the HIPAA rules today don't do that, for better or for worse. And so I think that if you, you know, one of the elements of this debate, and this goes to the question that Nick was leaving us with, is this whatever those interests are on the substance side, again, you, we may say they're exactly the same as they were in the 70s. Are they different than some of those other kinds of conditions that are also sensitive that don't get any special protections under HIPAA, under federal law. That's that seems to me to be part of the package of, of issues here.
1: Well, HIPAA does, and it, you know, I know that you know this, that the HIPAA does actually point out and, and offer special protections to psychology notes. The notes what, one, yes. yeah,
2: that one category that's almost relevant to nobody. Well, <laughs> but
1: it becomes less relevant because there are many mental health providers who do not even need to follow HIPAA because they don't use electronic transactions, yeah. right? So that's the way that they avoid that they Let's let's call it securing their own data, right? Ruling their own roost. They don't. They, they. You know, nobody can ask them or or hack them digitally because they don't even use digital information at all. Um,
2: so so they're not obligated to follow anything under HIPAA, which is a whole different right. whole but different set of But then those that issues. are,
1: <laughs> but under under Part Two, Part Two only applies to federally assisted programs, right? Which um, is going to require them often enough to uh, engage in electronic transactions. So they are going to be covered. You know, and I would say that the number probably I don't have the Venn diagram in front of me of people that are required to follow HIPAA and part two, but um, it would be larger perhaps than the mental health community. You know, in answer to in answer to Nick's larger question, um, I think that some people have more confidence in a system of uh, saving people from non-discrimination from discrimination than others. I see leaks. I see leaks in the ADA. I certainly see leaks in the Affordable Care Act. And I'm afraid that more leaks are going to be, you know, sprouting everywhere. Um, You know, I I can't say that I have confidence that this particular information is going to be held as sacred. You know, I also understand the problem of enforcement of part two data. But I do know that people that are uh, that act in this sphere are very careful about that information and do tend to know what part two is. And perhaps they protect the information at the outset more than um providers in general. I, you know, there is a lot of misunderstanding about HIPAA, which of course Kirk could tell us um, uh, you know, his clients all the time. But and of course there's misunderstanding about part two as well. But I'm I am frankly just not confident yet. And perhaps one day I will be confident if I become a more positive person, right? But um that, that we will be at well, you that
2: point. You have lots of evidence not to be confident. <laughs> exactly. right now. That's so the that's problem.
1: A- I'm not confident that we can protect those people the way that we need to protect them perhaps we won't uh enforce things against them perhaps we'll get our acts together with you know criminal law perhaps we'll actually um you know have regulations and put bite into them but I'm just not confident in that yet and I'm worried
2: well and one, one of the points you mentioned Melissa which i think is important if you were again I th- th- this is more important is if you were trying to design a system from scratch rather than patching this one but you talked about the people who operate in this sphere and I think that you know most most of the state laws that deal with sensitive conditions are very focused on the healthcare, or on the providers of that particular kind of information, or, or the, who, who deal with that particular kind of information. And the substance abuse rules started there, and they started with the federally sponsored—that's not the right word—but federally subsidized uh, substance abuse providers. But then they had all these uh, requirements imposed downstream on people who weren't in that those spheres of operations, and that's been one of the practical challenges that I think the system has had to deal with is you've got all kinds of people downstream who don't view this information any differently than anything else that they have and they protect it all the same way and they're protecting their HIV information and they're putting it into all their different whatever the everything else they're doing and they you know, they don't have any way to tell whether somebody was federally subsidized or not they don't have any particular way to tell whether and I guess they know if somebody's not billing insurance for example if they're an insurance company because they're not getting any bills from those people but maybe they could do that but as information floated through there wasn't a label like the law seems to envision, you know, they sort of envision a stamp on these records so you would know what it is. That stuff, that that piece doesn't exist at this point. And so I think there was a lot of implications, a lot of the potentially negative systemic implications. Again, we could say none of that matters and I'm okay with that part of the debate. But a lot of the downstream implications are because Part 2 extended these obligations so far downstream without really addressing what a downstream person, how they're different from the core substance abuse provider, I think the core substance abuse providers were absolutely good at protecting that information and have lots of interests to do that. And if we had a law that was focused mainly on that, I you know I I'd I I'd, I'd certainly wouldn't automatically object to that at all. I do think the I think the structure that was built with Part Two in the '70s is creating meaningful challenges today in our the rest of our current system. And again, I'd love I'd love to have the ability to have a thoughtful debate about how to build this from scratch. I agree. I don't think this this law necessarily came out of the blue in the sense that there's been a lot of percolation of this issue over the last few years. I think the regulatory issue, unless you know better than I do about what was going on inside the administration, but to some extent, the ability of the administration to deal with the regulations, they were stuck with this statute. So they couldn't change the statute through a regulation, which became part of the ultimate decision and the ultimate problem. I think what was disconcerting about the CARES Act, even if there had been some public debate before that is... Is that this was, you know, this was a, you know, you know, the I'm not sure exactly what the lobbying organizations were, but this is the things thrown into the, you know, in the, in the dark in the, the other bill. And it's the stuff that you figure out at the end of the day, who got the great tax break that somebody lobbied for. It's that kind of a provision. Um, and that, that, that does feel wrong. And that does feel weird. And it doesn't feel thoughtful about the complicated issues that we're, we're dealing with. Absolutely. Um, and again, I'll, I'll be curious how the regulations play, play out on that. I mean, I think it's going to be, but But I said, I think the ultimate, the ultimate concept, if you try to narrowize it, lots of other details we get into is at the federal level, for the most part, we're going to treat this information the way we treat virtually all the other information. Again, I pull it. psychotherapy notes, fine. I've gotten like two questions about psychotherapy notes in my, you know, in 20 years of doing HIPAA work. So it's not a, it doesn't have the same repercussions along the rest of the healthcare system that that a lot of this information does.
1: One other point that I, I think we should at least mention is the idea that when we think about about health information technology and the movement forward of interoperability and electronic health records. That there is an acknowledgement uh, from the technological side that we do need to move forward with ideas that include data segmentation and metadata tagging that can allow for separation of certain types of data and perhaps tagging or notification that this data should be or could be treated differently as other data. Now, part two was one of the original um, movements, one of the original reasons why data segmentation pilots started at HHS, because of the need for this particular information to be treated differently legally. But the movement has kept going, and it's actually part of meaningful use certification now, the idea that you have the ability to do that, even if it's not a full ability yet. And there is an acknowledgement among the technical side of things that this is the way forward. So the idea of sensitive information has not disappeared and is still moving forward, you know, even despite the language in the Care's Act. And how will we um how will we I guess rectify this difference now in the future from a regulatory standpoint and a technical standpoint on our way to interoperability is is very very interesting.
0: So we could go on like this for at least two more hours, couldn't we? Um this is this is merely the appetizer for us. Um, um, but I think I need to to bring it uh, to an end. I think we will be revisiting this because someone at some point is going to be drafting these rules, and I assume Melissa that that won't be under the cover of, of darkness. In fact, it might even be uh, in a bright new shiny place um, uh, after Jan after January, uh, where light is where light is everywhere. Um, but let me just say that uh, at this point, uh, that was the week in health law, almost two weeks. You can find Kirk at Kirk J. Nara Work, K-I-R-K-J-N-A-H-R-A-W-O-R-K on Twitter. Melissa is at M. Goldstein Ethic, M-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N-E-T-H-I-C. Thank you, my friends. It was lovely writing with you. It's even more fun talking with you. Thank you for Thanks having Thanks so us.
1: much for having us.
0: All right. Uh, show notes are at Tool.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy, safe and sane week.